Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 32. Acts 4, 32, beginning on page 1697 of the Bibles in the benches, if you're using them. As we continue our series along here in volume 2 of Luke's writings in the Holy Scriptures, inspired of God by the Holy Spirit and without error. Yes, our privilege and joy again to hear from God's Word this morning, beginning at Acts 4.32. This is God's Word. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife uh, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold, and after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what happened. And then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. And about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet, and she died. And the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So far the reading of God's holy word. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ and friends, you read different Bible scholars and commentators and preachers trying to explain this story, especially the ones that are writing and preaching in the early 1900s, and you find out pretty quickly that most of them are angry. These Bible scholars and these preachers trying to explain this story, when they read it, they get mad at someone. They're maybe mad at Luke, who wrote the story. 
They're mad because they say Luke made up this story that is not only ridiculous and impossible, but it's simply inconsistent with the Christian principles of love and mercy. Obviously, they say Luke came up with this story to try and scare people into falling, falling in line with his understanding of Christianity that was developing at the time. Or, if they happen to believe that Luke was actually trying to record the truth of what had happened, maybe they get mad at Peter. Some of them do. Who, in their understanding, Peter dealt very harshly with this poor couple. He didn't give them any opportunity for repentance. And after all, don't we all struggle with sin? Peter was abusing his apostolic power and office, they say, and they're angry. Or they're angry at their fellow Bible interpreters, people like you and me who take this story literally, who take this story at face value for what it says. We say that God immediately killed these people right at the hand or by the hand of the apostles. And they are mad at us for that. They say that we are guilty for buying into the kind of superstition that makes our faith look silly to the rest of the world. It's much more likely, they say, that, look, even if this story really happened, Ananias and Sapphira weren't really killed by the Lord at the hand of the apostles. They just maybe died from shock. You know, considering that Back in those days, the concept of sin was so much more prevalent in the culture. Everybody accepted the idea that, especially in this a group, in this society, that God was real and He had certain laws. And they had a certain matter of expectation that if you lived out of accord with the law of God, that uh, you would at least be alienated by the community, if not punished by God. So it's much more likely that they just died from shock. And the shame of having them be exposed in front of all of the congregation, all those that uh, they held dear. This is not the Lord killing anyone. And you people who are taking it that way are making a terrible mistake. But you know, it shouldn't surprise us that when people read this story, they get angry. Because if this story does not rattle your cage, if it does not rouse some passion in you, then you are not listening. Listen to this story. Here we are going along in the book of Acts, right? The explosive growth of the church, happy and positive. We see the miraculous healings that the Lord Jesus began to work in his life while he was walking on earth, and then he ascended into heaven, sent the Spirit, and now he's doing the same glorious miracles through the hands of the apostles in the church. People are coming to faith. The church is growing. Everything's going along fine. Of course, we had the minor annoyance last week of the persecution of the apostles. But, you know, we got over that. We saw that the gospel cannot be thwarted. It cannot be overturned or stopped by persecution. Things are going great. The apostles are continuing to preach and to heal and to give this magnificent message of grace and restoration to the fallen world. Everything's going along fine. We're back on a, on a positive way, but then this story happens. And I want you to notice... The transition in chapter 4, verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought, it to, and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And then chapter 5, verse 1 is translated here in the NIV now, but we'll rather translate that word, but. And that is, if you'll pardon the expression, a very big but 
in this story. Because it is contrasting the mentality and the grace in the life of this guy that they're calling Barnabas with Ananias and Sapphira who come after. There is a great dramatic shift in this story from something good and happy and positive and gracious to something astounding and very startling and very discomforting. Listen to the story, verse 2. With his wife's full knowledge, chapter 5, verse 2, with his wife's full knowledge, keep in mind what's going on here. It's important to understand what Ananias and Sapphira were actually doing. Whatever this act, this sin is, it's clearly premeditated. It's deliberate. It was thought out. There's got to be a reason that they got together ahead of time and planned this and decided how they were going to do what they were going to do. They had made a vow, you see, verses 3 and 4, to sell part, sell at least some of the land that they owned, and they were going to announce to the apostles and likely to others in the church that they were going to give all of the proceeds from the sale of that land to the apostles for the ministry of the church, and then they actually sold the land but held back part of the price that they had vowed to give, which was the full price, without telling anybody, so as to give the appearance, you see, that they were so good and generous and gracious like other people were in the church, like this Barnabas guy was. They had made a commitment to the apostles that they would give all of it. Look at how Peter addresses him in verse 3. Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart so that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received uh, for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? In other words, did anybody force you, Ananias, Sapphira, to come forward and give this land to the apostles for the work of the ministry in the church? The answer is no. We've seen this before. We've talked about it already. It wasn't that when the church came together as a community, the apostles demanded that everybody pool all of their resources into one pot and the apostles would then decide how it would all be spent. No, they did it like we do it today. The apostles would make known to the congregation the needs of the church, and then the church would voluntarily respond to meet those needs. There was no uh, compulsion that the apostles used to make himself all of this land. That's why he says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And then even after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? In other words, before you had committed to giving us all of the money, couldn't you have at that time just said, look, I'm going to give part of what it is to the apostles? But no, you lied instead. You made a declaration that you would give all of it. And everybody presumably heard this and was encouraged by your generosity. And then you secretly, along with your wife, which you had planned ahead of time, withheld part of the money. That's what's going on here. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then what happens in verse 5? When Ananias hears this, he falls down and he dies. That's right. Ananias falls down and he dies. And this is not likely Ananias going into shock because he was exposed and he was ashamed. It's not likely shock. Why not? First of all, look at, look at what happens after he dies. I mean, verse 6, they have this sort of this odd burial procedure. The young men come forward, wrap up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Now, keep in mind, immediately they come forward, carry him out, and bury him. 
without even telling his wife what had happened, without even going out and finding her and then arranging for the burial, they immediately carry this man, wrap him up and carry him out and put him in the tomb. Why? Because it's reflecting what kind of an action this is that God took on this man. It is church discipline in an extreme form. That's what's going on here. The idea is, get this man out of here. He has committed public sin, and the Lord is announcing to the congregation that this is not acceptable. He's not dying from shock. The Lord kills this man. And they carry him out because they're acknowledging what's happening here. The Lord is putting this man out of their fellowship because the Lord will not tolerate the sin. It's odd, isn't it too, that his wife wasn't informed about this. I mean, why wasn't she informed? Well, we think it's, it's pretty clear because they knew what was coming for her too. I mean, look what happens in, in verse 7. And this confirms that the idea that the Lord is the one who is immediately putting Ananias to death and then, of course, Sapphira. About three hours later, verse 7, his wife comes in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her. Now, why is Peter asking her? Does he not know what the situation is here? No, he knows what happened. But he asks her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Now, some people read that and think, oh, Peter's giving her an opportunity for repentance. You know, he actually names the price in uh, verse 8 in order that she'll say yes and in that way acknowledge, you know, that she has uh, sold the church short. But that's not what's happening, obviously. Look, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? She said, yes, that is the price. He is just for the sake of everybody that is watching, confirming the reason why, and for her too, confirming the reason why she is going to be put to death. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Verse 9, look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Peter wanted her to know and he wanted everybody else to know in the congregation. He wanted even himself to know why this was happening to her. He was not giving her an opportunity for repentance. Put her to death. They didn't go into shock. God killed them. All right, God killed these people. If that doesn't make you... If that doesn't rattle your cage, if that does not rouse some passion in you, then you are just deaf. Why is this so shocking to us? Well, it's shocking to us because, in a sense, we're exactly like Ananias and Sapphira. Now, I'm not talking about their outward sin, although that could be our problem, too. A greedy love of money and liking to show people that we're holy and that defines why we be religious and why we give and whatever else. That might be our problem, but I'm not talking about that. I think that we are like Ananias and Sapphira at the root of their sin. Because at the root of Ananias and Sapphira's sin is that they despised and rejected God's holiness and His transcendence and His right to demand from His creatures perfect obedience to His ways, and if they would resist His ways, then they would deserve condemnation and immediate judgment. And if Ananias and Sapphira had believed that, there is little doubt in my mind that they would have 
cared what other people thought of what they would be giving to the church so that they would come up with this grand display of generosity. And they certainly would never dare to lie to Christ as he was working and represented by, uh, through the apostles and represented by the apostles in the church in powerful ways. If they had respect for God's holiness and his transcendence and his right over his creatures, then this wouldn't have happened. And the reason why this story offends us and is shocking to us is because also, especially we as modern people, are very uncomfortable with the idea of a holy God. And even if we believe in the holy God, we are all in this church the first to say that we are not comfortable with Him. How can you be comfortable when you think about a God who is righteous and whose anger burns and who is fair and good and we look at our lives and we look around us at the world and we say, wow, there's a big gap between those two things. So if we're shocked by the story, it's because we become desensitized to the truth of the world in which we live, which is that it belongs to the Lord and it's His world. And if he was to immediately kill anyone, it would be fair for him to do, because he is the Lord. God is holy. He does not. He cannot tolerate sin. He had a right to kill Ananias and Sapphira. He has a right to kill anyone like this. And, really, the death that Ananias and Sapphira died is not the worst of it. I mean, this judgment that God breaks out with in the midst of the congregation here is only a little foretaste of judgment that comes on apostates within the church or on unbelievers outside of the church. Right? Same dynamic is at work when you think about the healings. We talk about the healings that were performed in this community in this time, and they see that this cripple is restored and he's walking and leaping and praising God. Well, he's walking and leaping and praising God, but guess what? Someday again his legs were going to break down. And that walking and leaping and praising God was only a foretaste of the great glorification and the power of the resurrection that he will receive in the future along with all of us who have faith in Christ when we will walk and leap and praise God. There's only a little foretaste in the healing of that great healing in the end. And there's only a little foretaste here in this judgment of the great judgment that will come in the end for those who are found who are found apart from Christ and resisting the holiness of God, refusing to acknowledge that he has a right to kill them. All these Bible interpreters, let alone the people who are unbelieving out in the world following false gods, refusing to acknowledge that God is holy, being, oh, offended by that. I don't want to hear that. I don't want that to be taught in my church. Well, it's not a question of if we like it or if we're shocked by it. It's a question of whether or not it's true. And it is true. It did happen. This is God. He is holy. He does not. He cannot tolerate sin. He had a right to kill them. Now ask yourselves, what effect does God's powerful, vengeful, violent display of His own holiness have on different people in the story? Because the truth of God's holiness cuts different ways. 
When people come into contact with the holiness of God and they come into contact with the truth and the power of Christ, they are never the same. Now, they don't all go the same direction, right? But people who come into contact with the holiness of God and the truth and power of Christ are never the same. Never the same. Really, there's only two groups of people, and they're both described in this story. The first group is summarized in or represented by this man in chapter 4, verse 36. This Joseph, the Levite from Cyprus, is probably some sort of an, an international businessman. It says Levite, uh, he's a Levite from Cyprus. He has Jewish blood. He was born in the diaspora out in Cyprus. The apostles named him a Barnabas, which means, and we're not sure how it means that, but somehow it means son of encouragement sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put at the apostles' feet. You see, this man was a good example of someone who had received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life. He had given himself, including his money, for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And that, got brought, great, great, that brought great encouragement uh, to the church in the time of its uh, formation. This is a group, verse 33, the end of verse 33, much grace was upon them all. Grace was upon this group. People, some people, when they come into contact with the truth and the power of God in Christ, grace is given to them, and they receive that which they are hearing, and it affects their lives. The grace of God, the pronouncing of forgiveness through the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ and through the death which atoned for their sins. The privilege of belonging then to that community who would receive the glorification in the future and also receive the benefits of belonging to that church in the time in which they lived. Look at the description of the church in verse 32. This is how some people respond to the truth and power of God. When they acknowledge the holiness of God, they acknowledge their own sin, and they flee to Christ and receive His grace, this is what describes them. Verse 32, all the believers were in one heart and mind. Again, that's a bad translation. It should say the congregation or the company was in one heart and mind. Meaning, this was the community of the church. People who believed the message of the gospel joined that body. And they saw it as a community, a community to which they needed to belong. And then it was actually a community, according to the things that we talked about earlier in the portrait of Acts of the early church. They gathered together publicly to worship God. That's one of the things that it meant to be a community. When the apostles called their people together, they were at church. They joined that church Presumably, he spent time, this Joseph, this Levite, and all of the believers were spending time with the members of the church outside of worship. They were indeed a community, right? He provided money generously and sacrificially for the needs of the community. And all of the Christians were doing that according to the degree that they were blessed. Look at that. There were no needy persons among them, 34. Time to time, those who owned lands or houses, especially those who had been extraordinarily blessed in life materially, which describes the majority of us here this morning in our culture. They brought money generously from the proceeds of what they had, and they put it at the apostles' feet and was distributed. This is describing 
the community of grace, the people that believed God's law and were convicted by it and fled to Christ and received the joy of their salvation. Verse 11, it describes them too of chapter 5. Great fear seized them. Great fear was seizing the whole church. People who have received the grace of God in Christ do not forget that God is holy and that though before we were slaves to sin, now we are set free and we are slaves to righteousness and it is our privilege and duty to know that we serve a God who is a consuming fire. And so we don't casually consider our sin anymore or take it lightly, but we fight it by God's grace and by the power of the Spirit. Calvin says things like, well, our fear as Christians is not the same as the fear of an unbeliever. I mean, the unbeliever fears that they're going to be condemned by God when they sin. When we sin as Christians, we do not fear that we will be condemned. We know that we will not be condemned in Christ, but we do fear offending the Father who loves us, and now by His grace we love Him. And he's a holy God. And it is a frightful thing to think that we compromise with sin, isn't it? Given that we believe in this God and that he saved us. And we also know that the Lord will break out in temporal, that means in time, in our lives, punishment sometimes for sin. To chasten, excuse me, not punishment, but chastening, disciplining us, purging us from our sins. Yes, the Bible teaches that. That we live our lives out in fear, knowing that we serve a holy God. who will chasten us. You see, this is the God we serve. This is all a mark of grace in our lives, that we take sin seriously, that we desire to worship this God and not some God that just makes us feel good. That we worship Him for His glory and we want to believe Him according to His word and do things in worship according to His way. This is the evidence of grace in your life. The generosity with your money, the thing which is the most important to you, or the most important to a lot of people at least, the evidences of grace uh, in our lives. But the truth cuts another way. There are the rest of the people, aren't there? The rest of the people. That language is even used in our text. And that actually became a technical word to describe everybody who was not a member of the church. There were two kinds of people. People who were members of the church community and then there were the rest. Now you see... With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. And, chapter 5, verse 12, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. They preached it with power. They worked with power. They obviously, in the outpouring of judgment and proclaiming about that and people hearing about that was great power. It forced people to make a decision. You could not sit on the fence when you heard the truth. It's the same today. I mean, the church's message was very dogmatic, it was very convicting, it was very demanding. Now, of course, it was gracious too. But it was never leaving you open to be indecisive or the message, the preaching, never failed to call people to make a decision and they had to choose one or the other. Either they had to respond and cry out to God for mercy or they had to forsake the church. Look at verse 13 of chapter 5. No one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. 
Now, that's very interesting because even those who rejected the church could not deny what was going on in the church. They could not deny the miraculous healing of the cripple that they'd all seen. They could not deny the testimony of these two people being immediately struck dead. They could not deny that the preaching of the apostles was the proper understanding of the fulfillment of the Old Testament that Christ was Lord. What are they going to argue? You remember the Sanhedrin couldn't even argue against it. They're the religious scholars, and they said, well, we can't refute what's going on, so we better just shut them up. You see, when the gospel goes forward, the law and the gospel go forward, the truth goes forward, the power of God in Christ goes forward, as it was, verse 33, chapter 4, with great power, the apostles continued to testify. When that goes forward, you either believe it and embrace it, or you harden your heart against it. There's no middle ground. When you get that sensation in you of shock and anger and discomfort, you do one of two things with it. You put the responsibility on yourself for your sin and you cry out to God to save you or you say, I don't want to hear it. Now notice, you could be one of those who says, I don't want to hear it and you could be in church every Sunday like Ananias and Sapphira where the whole thing's a joke to you. You go to church for your comfort, you go to church to see your friends, you go to make your business contacts, you go because that's what people do. They go to church, right? And they put up with this for a while. Nobody really believes in any way, they say, or they think. But the sin gets found out eventually. The hypocrisy. What's outward doesn't really matter because the Lord sees the heart. No one else dared join the church, even though they were highly regarded by the people. People know, don't they? People know that they're sinful. People know that they live in a world with a God who has established the rules and that they've rebelled against Him. And they do all kinds of things to suppress it, to distract themselves from it, but they know when they come into contact with the preaching of it that something with them is wrong. And that's why we know too. We're not any different than them. By nature, we sense something is wrong with us, but it's by God's grace only that we're able to see that it's our fault and that we cry out to Him for mercy and He grants us grace in Christ. But these others wouldn't dare to join us, even though they highly regard us in a sense. They don't dare to join us because our dogmatism, our, our being you know, very stubborn about the fact that we only believe in this God and that He is a God who ought to be worshipped and salvation is only found in Christ, our dogmatism is a little too extreme. And you know what happens if you join this church? Many of you know this and I know this. It's intense and it's invasive, isn't it? Because it puts on us also now responsibilities of gratitude toward each other and toward the community and in our personal lives to fight our sins. And to be called to account for those sins when we would go astray. Who wants to be a part of that? Well, only by the grace of God in Christ do we see the value of that, right? It is demanding to join the church. It puts added responsibility and concerns in my life that I would otherwise not have. What kind of a miserable existence is it to live thinking about sin all the time? They say, for those reasons, when those people come into contact with the powerful preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the apostolic authority today through that preaching and through the discipline of congregations and through the administration of the sacraments where Christ has instituted them properly, people are not attracted outwardly to those churches. 
because it doesn't make you feel good. But by God's grace, there are those who come in. More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Praise God for His grace that He hasn't destroyed all of these people and all of us. But He's shown us His favor in His Son and opened our eyes to see our need for Him. How is your name going to be recorded in the annals of history? Going to be like Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, one who would sell a field he owned and bring its money and put it at the apostles' feet and live in community with the church and fight his sin all of his life. Or like Ananias and Sapphira who die by the powerful judgment of the Lord and await a further judgment. May God give us grace to acknowledge our sin, His holiness, and receive the Christ who loves us and has given Himself for us and to go forward all our lives in His thankful service. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're quick to forget your holiness and its implications for us, and yet we quickly look to Christ and ask you not to look upon us, but to look upon him. And we thank you for his blood, and we thank you for his life, and we thank you that you see us in that blood and in that life. Oh, Father, would you strengthen us to lay aside all of our sin, to set off all of our hypocrisy, and let us live truly for your glory and your glory alone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.